to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Have you ever been on the fence about whether to make a change in your life? When you have made a change, has your motivation waxed and waned from day to day? Do you have someone in your life who seems motivated to change one minute, but then talks themselves out of it the next? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you're in the right place. Today, we're talking about motivation and ambivalence. It's an issue we address with almost everyone who comes in the therapy office. Someone might come in one week saying they're really motivated to change. Then the next week, they might say they're not really sure they want to do anything differently. Maybe what's happening right now isn't so bad. Being on the fence about issues in your life, like whether to eat healthier, quit drinking, or change jobs, is normal. Learning more about ambivalence and how to deal with it can be quite helpful to you as you decide what to do next. My guest today is Dr. William Miller. He's a psychologist and a professor at the University of New Mexico. He studies the psychology of change and loves exploring the intersection of spirituality and psychology. He's written several books on motivational interviewing, which is a strategy that helping professionals use to encourage people to make decisions about change. Today, we're talking about his latest book, On Second Thought, which explains why we're often so ambivalent about making changes. Some of the things Dr. Miller talks about today are why ambivalence is normal, how to work through your own feelings of ambivalence, and how we can help other people who are on the fence about change. So here's Dr. William Miller on how understanding ambivalence can help you grow mentally stronger. Dr. Miller, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you very much. So as a therapist, ambivalence is something I deal with often, but it's not just something I deal with in my clients. I can say uh, with honesty, it's something I deal with in my own life as well. I think as we all do, if we're honest, But before we dive in and talk about your new book, On Second Thought, can you define for us what ambivalence really is? Well, it's being pulled in at least two different directions at the same time. It can be mixed feelings. It can be uh, mixed intentions. But it's uh, the essence of it is wanting and not wanting at the same time. And I think this is the time of year where a lot of people are experiencing ambivalence. People who set out in the new year to say, "Okay, my goal is to get healthier. I'm going to start going to the gym more. I'm going to quit smoking. And then we know statistically a couple of weeks into January, most of those resolutions go out the window. Sometimes it's because people haven't prepared enough. Sometimes it's because people set their sights too high. But sometimes people are ambivalent, right? They say, I want to do this, but at the same time, I don't want to put in the work, or maybe I don't want to do that. Well, that's a normal response to uh, to change. I mean, if you're diagnosed with diabetes or you begin to wonder if you're drinking too much or whatever, it's normal to both want and not want a change, to see reasons for it and see reasons against it simultaneously. So nothing abnormal about that at all. So let's say I go to my doctor and my doctor says, here's some medication, either for high blood pressure or uh, high cholesterol. Maybe I go home and I think, all right, I'm going to take this medicine, but then I only take it some of the time. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's hard to say in the abstract. I mean, it could just be uh, organization or needing prompts or something like that. 
It might not be that you're feeling two ways about it, just you haven't arranged your life yet in a way that makes it happen reliably. But it also might be because you're not sure you want to take the medication. And that's what we see in the therapy office a lot. Sometimes people will say, okay, I'm going to take my antidepressant. And then they kind of don't take it. Or they come in and they say, yeah, I really want to change my life. But then they think about the work that it's going to take. And one of the things I really appreciated about your book is you talk about the inner committees in our head. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it's it's like we have a committee that's trying to make a decision, um, most often about whether to make a change or not, but it can be about all kinds of things. And there are different voices on that committee. Uh, so some of the members are in favor of making the change. Some of them are absolutely opposed to it. Some are kind of on the fence. And it's like they have a discussion around the table about this and you hear it going in your head. Um, and that's just a way of, uh, kind of saying this is this is part of the experience of ambivalence. And again, nothing unusual about that. Every day, all of us experience ambivalence. So let's say I am going to quit smoking. The committee who says, yes, you should do that, they might have five reasons. It's your health issues. It costs a lot of money. But then what about the other voice, the committee that says, maybe you don't want to do this? What kind of messages might they say? Uh, Well, I like my life the way it is. Uh, Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I mean, they're just all kinds of lines like that. Um, And so the common place to get stuck is to think of a reason to change and then think of a reason not to change and then stop thinking about it because it's, it's kind of unpleasant. And that's how you can stay stuck in ambivalence for a long time. Yeah, we seem to go with the status quo, don't we? It's easier sometimes to just say, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing or I'm going to keep not doing what I haven't been doing rather than create change. That's the default of what we've been doing, sure. Yeah. So how do we deal with that voice? So let's say, okay, I want to quit smoking, but then I have all those reasons. I like my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And you start thinking maybe it's not so bad. We minimize it. We justify it. We look for all of those other reasons to keep doing it because change is hard. What do we do when we find ourselves in that situation where we still have that committee member who's saying, no, you shouldn't do this. But yet we have that other committee member that's saying it's not that big of a deal. You should just keep doing it anyway. Well, and and what do I do as a helper to assist that person? I mean, what what you probably should not do is become the champion for change and tell the person what's wrong with them and what they should do. Because the normal response to that is for the person to voice the other side of their ambivalence. That's not pathological. That's not denial. That that is just the normal reaction of an ambivalent person when you take up one side of the argument. They're likely to take up the other. That might be okay, a little psychodrama of acting out the person's ambivalence, except that people are more likely to believe what they say than what I say. And so if I argue for change and I cause the person to continue voicing the other side of their ambivalence, they literally are talking themselves out of changing. Yeah, it's funny how we do that, right? Maybe you have a family member who we think should lose weight, but maybe the doctors even warned them that they need to take steps to take care of their health. It's frustrating to watch. You think, okay, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So then we're tempted to then give them that lecture about thinking it's a lack of education or they don't understand. But you're right. Then they give us all the reasons why they don't want to change. And as they say it out loud, yeah, but I don't want to do that. It kind of cements their decision to not take action. Is that fair? That's right. Yeah. I mean, doctors complain to me. I tell them and I tell them and I tell them and they still don't change. Well, part of the problem may be the telling. 
Yeah, there's this gap between knowing something and doing it, right? I haven't met anybody who didn't know that smoking was bad for their health, yet at the same time, knowing that it's bad for you doesn't necessarily lead to action. No. So how do you stay on that path toward change? I mean, in, in the method called motivational interviewing that I introduced long ago, that's something that we do. We try to help people stay with their own motivations for change. So instead of telling people what they should do, I'm likely to ask people what they think they should do and why they would want to do that and how they would go about doing it so that they're actually voicing their own motivations for change rather than responding to my arguments for change, which they probably don't care about. And it's tough to do that, right? Even as a therapist, that's something I've learned too. When people are on the fence to help them come up with their motivations, not the ones I see, or the, for me to say, well, your doctor said, yeah, you really shouldn't do this or you should start doing that. doesn't matter what other people say. It's really about that inner committee, right? Well, and there is some restraint involved in that for therapists to, to kind of hold back your immediate impulse, which is to say, I know how to do this. I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'll tell you why it's important. Uh, we call that the writing reflex. Those of us that go into helping professions want to fix things, want to help people, you know. And so it's natural to kind of step in with the solutions, particularly when you're trained as a graduate student to have the answers to questions. You know, the real, real issue in medical school, uh, having answers for your clients is probably not the best way to proceed. Now, sometimes they ask for them and perfectly legitimate to offer some ideas. Uh, but starting there, you're likely to wind up going down the slippery slope of evoking from them their own reluctance and talking themselves into it. That the normal response to, adv to advice to change is not to do it or to do the opposite. It's called psychological reactance. And, and that's what you can normally expect from giving people advice. So then what do you do? Let's say you have a friend, a family member, somebody you're concerned about, and they maybe occasionally say, yeah, I should do something about this, but then they don't do it. What, mm -hmm. uh, what questions do we ask? What do we say? What do we not say? You get curious when they say, uh, you know, I, I should do something about this, or I think I should, or I know I should. You get curious and say, well, what, why would that be? Why would you want to do that? You know, uh, what, what might you say are the three best reasons for you to do it? You know, you know a lot about yourself more than anybody else does. Knowing what you know about yourself how would you go about it in order to succeed? Because you, you know how you work, you know? So it's asking the person to tell me the why they would want to change, the how they would do it, how important it is. We even have a simple little ruler from zero to 10. Sometimes I ask people, how important is it for you to make this change? Zero is not in the least important. 10 is, it's the most important thing in my life right now. What number would you give yourself? And the person can, comes up with a number. The key question is, and why are you at that number and not zero? Or why are you at that number and not a lower number? Because those are the person's own motivations for change. The helping reflex then is once to say, why are you at six and not 10? <laughs> but the, right. answer to, the answer to that is the wrong answer. It's, it's all the reasons I don't want to. So you're trying to help people voice their own positive motivations for change, much more powerful than, than trying to persuade people. And how effective are we at supporting people? So if somebody's at a six for motivation, 
we obviously want them to be at a 10 because we're watching them struggle with something. And it seems like, well, if you just made that change, it'd be so easy. But until they're ready, how do we move them or help them or support them while they're at a six? Painful for me to watch, yet at the same time, that's where they are. I, I want to respond first to your phrase, until they're ready, because that, that's been a huge myth, particularly in the addiction field. There's yeah. nothing, nothing you can do until the person's ready to change. It's simply not so. In fact, helping people to become ready for change is part of our job, an important part of our job. And sometimes that's all you need to do. Uh, if you can, if you help the person to see their own positive motivations for change and really take those in in a safe environment, sometimes that's all that's all that you need. You know. Uh, so I, I got distracted down that rabbit hole there, but it's an important Yeah, thank one. you for clarifying that because I do think that is a huge myth. And here I am a therapist and it still came out of my mouth where we think somebody has to be 100% ready. But if we no. all waited until we were 100% ready, we'd never make any changes in our lives. No, of course not. Of course not. We're, perfection you know, can be a real problem. That's a problem with New Year's resolutions. You know? I'm not going to eat sweets anymore. You know? And then as soon as you have the first one, which is almost certain to happen, then your inner committee says, well, now I've blown it. You know, no, I, I'm off that diet. You know, no, I guess I can't do this. You know, all of that self-talk that uh, that runs you down. It's not a matter of perfection, typically, but taking steps in the right direction. So then what do we do? Somebody's at a six. We want mm-hmm. them to take action, but maybe they're still thinking. They're not in the action phase of change yet. They're still in what we call the contemplative phase where they're thinking about the pros and cons of taking action versus the pros and cons of staying just the way they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I would ask more about the pros. You know? uh, and that's what I was doing with that question of why, why are you at six and not zero? Because the answer to that is the person talking more about their own motivation for change, and they hear it as well, just as they hear it if they're arguing against change. So you could, you literally, and I mean literally, talk yourself into change or talk yourself out of change. And so what you want is to arrange, if you're a helper, arrange the conversation in a way that the person begins to talk him or herself into changing. And it's very doable. There are 1,700 controlled trials of motivational interviewing at this point. So it it is something you can do to help people become more ready to change rather than just sitting and waiting for them to change or blaming them for not being ready. What about on myself? Let's say I have had a goal and I've thought about it for months, maybe years, and I think, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I think, yeah, maybe not. And I'm on the fence. Are there strategies I can use on myself to deal with my own ambivalence? It depends what you want to do. If, if you want to just take a good look at your ambivalence, um, there's something called a decisional balance. So you maybe just have four cells, you know, to change, what are the good reasons to do it? What are the reasons not to do it? And then to stay the same, what are the reasons to do it? What are the reasons not to do it? And literally write them out. However, if what you want to do is actually to change, that's not a good idea. You actually want to focus on two of those boxes what what's the downside of the status quo? Well, that is what what's not so great about how things are right now, and what would be the advantages of making this change, and really focusing, asking those members of the committee to speak up, uh, and and focus on those two boxes. Somewhere we got the idea, therapists got the idea, 
that doing that full decision, decisional balance, asking about all the pros and all the cons would help people change. It doesn't. It actually undermines motivation for change. So if you're wanting to help yourself move along the road to change, it really is focusing on the kinds of questions that I was mentioning just a little while ago. Why would you, why would you want to do this? And you can, you can literally write or speak your answer to that. You know, How important is it to you? Uh, and, and why is it important? What would you say are the best reasons for you to do this? Uh, what are you willing to try? Uh, how would you go about it in order to succeed? Uh, and as a counselor, you're, you're thereby using the person's own wisdom, their own resources. Uh, you're you're uh, amplifying the, the energy of their own positive motivations and focusing on those rather than leaving them stuck in the yes, but. And do you think that we need to find a substitute? So let's say, let's go back to the smoking example. Let's say I'm a smoker because I find it relieves my stress. Am I able to quit smoking now or do I need to find a substitute for a stress reliever before I can actually quit smoking? Doesn't seem to be a, a magic order to that. I mean, some people do find some kind of substitute helpful. Certainly with opiates, the best thing we have at the moment is, is substitute opiates that are, are not so addicting and not so deadly. Um, with smoking, substitutes are nicotine gum and, and uh, you know, other, other forms of nicotine substitution. That's helpful for some people. Other people don't need it, don't want it. Um, so it, it really is an individual question, I think. If, if you've been doing something like, uh, you know, drinking a lot, and when you stop, you find something really starts going wrong. You know, uh, you're beginning to get more angry or more depressed or more anxious or whatever. Maybe there is something else there to deal with. For the most part, and we've studied this quite a bit, when people quit drinking, the rest of their life gets better. <laughs> uh, it's not that there's a symptom substitution and something else automatically takes its place. In fact, that's, that is uh, the exception rather than the rule. And how do we get people to buy into that? Because most people who are struggling with a, a bad habit struggle to see that life will be better on the other side. They know that there's hard work. There's this gap. I have to give up something. I'm going to have to work hard. How do, uh, how do we help them see and make sure it's in their own words that life could be better if they were to, to give up this habit? And in their own words is the, is the magic piece there because you can provide all kinds of reasons. They may not matter at all to the person. Their reasons are the ones that matter. And to have them voice them to you and defend them to you and elaborate them to you uh, is, is, is helpful, really. And certainly much more helpful than uh, persuading, giving advice, telling people what to do which is likely to have, ironically, the opposite effect from what you're hoping. Yeah, it's funny. Lectures don't work, yet we still often want to give unsolicited advice or lecture people about what we think is going wrong. But we know pretty clearly that's not helpful. We all know that, right? And, and mm -hmm. yet we do, we do it as helpers, thinking, well, it'll be helpful for the other person, you know. <laughs> well, right. actually not, yeah. Right. I know how it feels on the receiving end of unsolicited advice. I don't usually welcome that when somebody says, hey, you know what you should do? Mm -hmm. it, it makes you less likely to do it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what about once we decide, okay, I'm going to make this change in my life. I'm going to start going to the gym. I'm going to stop eating so much junk food. I'm going to uh, finally go ahead and improve my, my marriage. 
But then a couple weeks into it, our motivation often goes a little bit awry and we feel like, oh, this is too hard to do. What are the strategies then when you start thinking, maybe I don't want to do this after you've given it a little bit of time and effort and put some thought into it. But once you start moving into the action phase, you think maybe this is more effort than I realized. Well, it's a, a shortcoming of black and white thinking. I think that e- either you're, you want it or you don't want it, you know. And mm-hmm. in fact, with ambivalence, we, usually both are true that part of me wants it and part of me doesn't want it. Uh, you just stay with the part that does want it and keep moving in that direction, knowing it's going to be imperfect, you know, knowing there'll, there'll be some setbacks, maybe some heavy setbacks. Uh, but it's getting back on track, getting back on the horse uh, and keeping to move forward without expecting perfection of yourself. That those black and white perfection expectations really get in the way. Now I've blown it. You know, I guess I don't really want to do this. That that's trying to explain to yourself something that's very normal, which is is why a little setback happened. It's just a setback. That's all. I agree with that completely. I see so many people get derailed because they think, well, uh, I didn't want it that bad, or I I'm not able to create that change because I made a mistake mm-hmm. uh, or had that one misstep. So then they tend to throw in the towel. How do we help people when they do make a mistake so that they know it's one mistake, it's one setback? But I'm not all the way back at the beginning. I might just be one step back from where I was yesterday. Well, if you're a helper, you're, you're already saying the things that you would need to say. I mean, people overinterpret a setback. You know, I I must not really want this. Uh, I guess I really can't do this, you know. No, that's not true. Uh, It's perfectly normal. Um, But if you're in a helping relationship with a person, you help them rethink that. Say, no, that's not true. You know, look, for example, I had a client who had not had anything to drink for about four months, you know, and was drinking about 80 drinks a week uh, before that, you know, a lot, and then came in hanging his head one week. I said, what's wrong? He said, I drank this week. I said, well, what, what happened? He said, well, well I, went to a, I went to a birthday party and I had a couple of drinks. And Yeah, and, that, and then what? Well, the next day I had a couple of drinks. And then I said, this is stupid. You know, what do I, it's not what I want to do. But I blew it. You know? I said, well, let's take a look at this. You, <laughs> you started at 80 drinks a week. That's what we added up. Uh, you've had four months of zero. Now you had one week with four. No? Uh, that seemed like a pretty big change to me, like 95%. But the real thing is, where do you want to go from here? What do you want to do now? And what he wanted to do was get back on track. He was feeling much better, not drinking. But, but he was just giving this terrible lecture to himself about what it meant that he was imperfect. Uh, and and. We need to not be quite so hard on ourselves about things like that. I think so too. So many times where we set out to do something and then we think, well, clearly that's not meant to be. Rather than learning from a mistake, we just give up. And I've done it in my own life with certain things too. How do we, how do we learn to be kinder to ourselves so when we do mess up, we can look at it as a learning opportunity and rather than the end of the road? Well, I, in a helping relationship, I try to help people prepare in advance. You know, now I, I know that you you plan not to have any setback, which would be great. But let's think ahead. Let's let's do a fire drill here. That if it if it does happen, what could you tell yourself 
to, uh, to not have that be a disaster, you know? A, a, a slip doesn't have to be a disaster, you know? It's just, it's just a behavior, you know? We give too much power to it. And so work with the person to come up with antidote statements. You know, what do you know about yourself that's true that you can tell yourself to say, no, no, wait a minute. And I often use now wait a minute as the introduction to this as well. Oh, I had a drink and uh, now I screwed it up. Well, now wait a minute. <laughs> look how much progress I've made, you know. Uh, you know, look how far I've gone. And, and it's just a matter of do I want to stay? Uh, with this uh, old, old pattern of mine, or do I want to keep going in a new direction? So, but people have their own best ideas about what are for them the best antidote statements. And it's not a matter of prescribing them so much as discovering them. I like that. So if we come up with a, a strategy, even for ourselves, if we know I have this goal, if and when I mess up, here's what I can tell myself, have it ready to go and then adopt it when you need it and, and move forward. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a, like, a, like a fire drill, you know, you just kind of prepare in advance just, just in case you need it. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in terms of staying motivated over the long haul, what do you find? Where does ambivalence come in for that? So somebody makes some progress. Maybe they think, okay, my life is getting better. I, I really do like this. But yet again, progress doesn't always come in a straight line. Things kind of go up and they go down. How do you find it? What kind of role does ambivalence play as we're moving along that path? Well, ambivalence is not necessarily a bad thing. In, in this book, I talk about ambivalence as a virtue. You know, being able to see two sides or more sides of a situation is something I value in a leader, for example. You know, not somebody who always does exactly the same thing, but somebody who listens to both sides and thinks it over. You know, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln appointed to his cabinet the people who had opposed him in his lecture, in, in his election. Uh, he wanted to hear those other voices. He would still make the decision, but uh, he didn't want everybody just agreeing with them, you know? So I, I think being able to entertain different perspectives is, is a strength. And ambivalence is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's a normal human condition. You can, you can live with it, you know? Uh, with my own children, sometimes uh, I have held hope and despair simultaneously, you know? Uh, and you don't have to choose between them. You know, say, well, this is the true one and that's the false one. Both things can be true at the same time uh, and nothing wrong with that. So you don't even have to punish yourself for being ambivalent. Not much point in doing it since that's pretty normal human nature. I love that because I think we do think I should be able to make a decision or I should be able to take some kind of action. We beat ourselves up for being on the fence. Well, and probably you can take some kind of action. Um, but if you're looking for perfection, that's that's a trap. And I like the idea, too, that both things can be true. You might hold out hope for somebody while also feeling some despair, that you could be happy, but also be sad about something else. So often we think we have to be one or the other and that we have to pick. And human beings are both, usually. We are, we are yes and creatures. I love that. Yes and creatures. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for sharing all of your words of wisdom with us. And hopefully you'll help all of us who do feel like we're stuck sometimes. And I hope all of our readers go out and buy a copy of On Second Thought. My pleasure. Welcome to The Therapist Take. 
This is the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Miller's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of his strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, look at the pros and cons when you're on the fence. Dr. Miller talked about looking at the pros and cons of change versus staying the same. But he says when you want to increase your motivation to do something, you should only look at the cons of staying the same versus the pros of creating change. So let's say you want to start exercising more often. Currently, you work out once in a while and you always think you should do it more, but you don't actually do it. You could increase your motivation by thinking about the cons of not exercising, like you feel tired a lot and maybe you're developing preventable health issues. Then look at the pros of exercising. You might gain confidence, your clothes might fit better, and you might have more energy. Hopefully, your list will be longer, but you get the idea. Essentially, you can increase your motivation by examining the pros of making a change and the cons of not making the change. Number two, identify which inner committee members you want to listen to. Dr. Miller says the factors that motivate one person to change won't necessarily motivate someone else. So it's important to recall the factors that are most motivating to you. One of the ways to do this is to imagine that there's an inner committee meeting in your head. Some members are going to try to convince you to do one thing. Other members are going to try to convince you to do something else. It's up to you to decide which members you want to listen to the most. All of them might have some good points, but it's likely that there will be one with an argument that sounds more compelling than the rest. For example, there's a study on what makes people quit smoking. They took a group of middle-aged women who smoke and warned them about their risk of developing cancer. Essentially, none of them quit after hearing about the fact that they were putting their lives in danger. But when they warned those same women that they would develop wrinkles and that they would age much faster, a whole bunch of them put down the cigarettes. The immediate risk of looking old motivated many of them more than the potential of developing health issues down the road. So some of the inner committee members in your mind might be trying to talk you out of something that you really want to do. Just recognize that and choose to focus more on the arguments you want to hear and those can help you make more positive changes. And number three, if you want to encourage someone else, ask questions, but don't give advice. If there's someone in your life who seems ambivalent about change, resist the urge to tell them that they need to do something different. Dr. Miller explained how everyone has a tendency to argue about all the reasons why they shouldn't change, and lecturing is likely to backfire. So instead, ask somebody questions about what they think they should do. When the words come out of their own mouths, they're more likely to believe it. For example, let's say your mom is prescribed blood pressure medication that she's supposed to take every day. She says she only takes it about three days a week, though, because she forgets on the other days. Lecturing her to take it every day probably won't change her behavior. Warning her about how not taking it is bad for her health probably won't cause her to change either. In fact, she might argue back that she feels fine on the days when she doesn't take it, too. So instead, ask some open-ended questions like, do you think it's important to take your medication every day? If she says yes, you might follow up by asking, what would help you to remember to take it regularly? She might offer that she could set a reminder on her phone, or she might say she'll start taking it after breakfast every day so it becomes a habit. With helpful questions from you, she can likely arrive at her own solution. So often we think that people just need more knowledge and that then they'll change. But studies show this isn't true. Take, for example, calorie counts on menus. Laws require chain restaurants to reveal how many calories are in food items. 
The thought was if people knew how many calories were in that burger and fries that they were about to order, they might choose a healthier option. But that's not what happens. Studies consistently show calorie counts have no effect on consumer behavior. That's because there's a gap between knowing something and wanting to do something with that knowledge. So don't think someone who smokes just needs more education on how harmful smoking is. Instead, ask them what they think about smoking and see if there are any small steps that they want to take. So those are three of Dr. Miller's strategies that can help with ambivalence. Look at the pros of change versus the cons of staying the same. Identify which inner committee members you really want to listen to. And ask other people questions that will help them see if there are any factors that motivate them to want to change. If you want more information about ambivalence, check out Dr. Miller's book on Second Thought. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.